Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Will Rice of Americans for Tax Fairness, who assesses the winners and losers in the debt ceiling deal and opposition to making permanent, expiring provisions of the 2017 Trump tax cuts that primarily benefit the rich. Tara Heinzen, legal director with the group Food and Water Watch, who examines the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Sackett versus EPA case that limits the government's ability to protect the nation's critical wetlands. And atomic veteran Hank Bolden, Captain Kiko Johnston Kitazawa, and crew member Bill Good, who talk about the voyage of the Cold War era peaceboat Golden Rule, sailing again to demand nuclear abolition. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Nearly a million stateless Rohingya refugees living in Bangladesh camps have been mostly forgotten by Western nations focusing on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Nearly six years ago, tens of thousands of Rohingya were forced out of villages in western Myanmar by the army and Buddhist militants. Today, the Rohingya are interned in overcrowded camps and denied the right to work. Oliver D. Shutter, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, says the Rohingya are at risk of becoming the new Palestinians trapped in horrendous conditions with little prospect of returning to their homeland. For now, the Rohingya rely on dwindling amounts of Western aid and food supplies. De Shutter told The Guardian he has rarely seen such conditions in refugee camps and has never seen people in such a level of depression. The situation of the Rohingya is the basis of a high-profile genocide case now before the International Court of Justice. The Rohingya's hopes of returning home have dwindled even further after the 2021 Myanmar military coup overthrew the civilian government. Over recent decades, Minnesota has been a reliable blue state in presidential elections. Barack Obama won it twice, Hillary Clinton won it in 2016, and Joe Biden won it once more in 2020. But in the state legislature, power has often been divided. So, when Democrats won control of both the State House and Senate in 2022, it gave progressives a golden opportunity to push for sweeping reforms. With a one-seat majority in Minnesota's Senate, the progressive Democratic Farmer Labor Party pushed through major reforms not even seen in deep blue states like Massachusetts, California, or New York. Labor rights legislation signed into law includes mandatory paid sick days for nearly all workers, a sectoral bargaining system for nursing homes, and a ban on captive audience meetings by anti-union employers. A separate bill guarantees a minimum wage for Uber and Lyft ride-sharing drivers. Minnesota progressives also passed increased protections for abortion and LGBTQ rights. One bill banned gay conversion therapy, while two others protected non-residents seeking gender-affirming care from being prosecuted or extradited by conservative states. 
The American Prospect observed that when a political party runs on a coherent agenda that it actually tries to carry out, it can get a lot done. Reformers are demanding a shakeup inside the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. With 1.2 million members, the UFCW is one of the largest private sector unions in America and the largest inside the AFL-CIO. While the union boasted about defending the rights of essential workers in supermarkets and other retail outlets during the COVID pandemic, many of the temporary wage increases won were rolled back by grocery chains as the pandemic faded, shaking confidence in the UFCW's ability to wield power effectively. In these times reports that much of the reform energy came out of the UFCW Local 3000 in the Pacific Northwest. Faye Gunther, elected president of the local in 2019, represents 50,000 workers, the largest UFCW local in the U.S. She complains that over the last 20 years, the union's leadership has been reluctant to go on strike and failed to confront the growing consolidation of big grocery chains. Gunther and other reformers believe that constant internal, political, and community organizing are essential to strengthen the union and win. At the UFCW's April convention, reformers proposed constitutional amendments to move to a more democratic, one-member, one-vote system, ensure delegates on the board are more reflective of the actual membership, and require the union to increase its budget for organizing from 5 to 20 percent. While all the reform amendments failed, Gunther is not deterred. She and other activists have plans to travel the country over the next five years to strengthen their reform movement, building up to the next convention. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the nation faced the possibility of catastrophic default over a House Republicans' manufactured crisis threatening not to raise the federal debt ceiling, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy negotiated a budget deal that was signed into law on June 3rd. The agreement exclusively mandated program cuts rather than increasing revenue by closing tax loopholes that benefit the wealthiest Americans and profitable corporations. The deal, which suspends the nation's borrowing limit until January 2025, limits non-defense discretionary spending to 1% annual growth, claws back $28 billion in unspent COVID-19 relief funds, and imposes new work requirements for SNAP food stamp recipients 50 to 55 years old. The agreement also eliminates $1.4 billion in IRS funding, restarts federal student loan payments for 43 million Americans, increases the Pentagon budget to a record $886 billion, and fast-tracks the long-stalled and controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. Your reporter spoke with Will Rice, policy consultant with Americans for Tax Fairness, who assesses the winners and losers in the debt ceiling budget deal and his group's opposition to the GOP plan 
to make permanent expiring provisions of the 2017 Trump-era tax cuts that primarily benefit the rich and corporate America. This is supposed to be a uh, negotiation, but um, Republicans refuse to talk about uh, raising revenue, which usually if you're trying to close a gap, uh, a budget cap, you at least talk about revenue and and don't focus entirely on, on what you're spending. So I think the American people were were losers, although I have to say that I'm pleased that President Biden negotiated this deal, which was uh, much better than it could have been. A lot of important programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid uh, were spared. So it was not as bad as it could have been, but it still was not a good deal. The food stamp requirement you mentioned, um, most food stamp recipients, or it's now called Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, do work. And there already are work requirements in states. Prior to this, somewhat older adults, those between 50 and 54, were not required to either be working or looking for work or in some sort of educational program or structured volunteer program. And now they are. These uh, studies have shown over and over again that these work requirements, what they do is they just throw up red tape impediments to people getting this food aid. It doesn't actually inspire or help anyone get a job or keep a job. So it's really kind of a backdoor way of denying people these benefits. I think when when people hear work requirements, it sounds pretty reasonable, but that's just the title they've given what's really an attempt to block people from getting this aid that they need. I I think that the real uh, division here, if we go beyond this particular deal, is that um, Republicans seem to be saying we're spending too much money uh, specifically on people, uh, not on the defense budget, as you mentioned, but if you look around and see the degree of homelessness, you see even after the Affordable Care Act, tens of millions of people without health insurance, people not having long-term insurance, how low the savings rate is, how few people have a secure retirement in front of them. We're not overspending on those things, obviously. So that's even more of a reason to turn your eyes towards revenue, uh, not only uh, from rich people and from corporations, Uh, not only as a source of revenue, but if you see their lives and how they're doing, the contrast is quite stark. So that's why I say it was a better deal than it could have been, but it was all being played in the wrong field, I think, which was on the theory that we have enough revenue and we're spending too much. Our organization, and I think a lot of people in the progressive community, believe that we're not spending enough, at least in the right places, and we're also not raising enough revenue to pay for that. How can we as a country eliminate future hostage takings and extortion by the Republicans over the debt ceiling? Is legislation possible to end it once and for all? As I understand it, we're the only nation in the world that debates whether or not to pay our bills. I think they should do away with the debt ceiling. Absolutely. I think uh, most uh, members of Congress, uh, most Democrats are probably a little frightened to put that forward because they know the ads will be run against them by the Republicans. But it's a crazy way to run a government. All it does is manufacture a crisis in a town that already has enough crises. My understanding is it can be done away with, you know, with a simple majority vote in both houses of Congress. Now that the debt ceiling crisis is behind us, the Republicans now plan to introduce legislation to make expiring portions of the Trump tax cuts that primarily benefited the nation's richest people and most profitable corporations permanent. What can progressive Democrats, President Biden, and uh, 
people concerned about the inequities in our tax system do to not just stop the GOP from making these tax cuts permanent, but repeal them entirely? You're right that they are now turning to the Trump tax cuts. This is a law that was passed back in 2017, and it completely puts the lie to the Republican claim that they're worried about too much debt because uh, they're uh, trying to extend expired and expiring provisions of this law that would add over $3 trillion to the national debt over 10 years. And as you, as you mentioned, um, this is a law that overwhelmingly benefited the rich and corporations and the, all the money that the Republicans uh, saved by capping and in some cases reducing uh, what's spent on domestic programs, they're turning around and handing out to the wealthy, basically. So they cut those programs not to reduce federal debt, but to take the money and hand it to the already wealthy. That was Will Rice, policy consultant with Americans for Tax Fairness. Find more analysis and commentary on the debt ceiling deal by visiting our Between the Lines website, at btlonline.org. In a 5-4 decision May 25th, the U.S. Supreme Court weakened the federal government's ability to enforce laws to prevent water pollution, ruling that the 1972 Clean Water Act does not allow the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate discharges into some wetlands near bodies of water. The case, Sackett v. EPA, involved an Idaho couple. Michael and Chantel Sackett, who tried to build a house on property they purchased in 2005. The couple filled marshland on their property with sand and gravel to prepare for construction, but the EPA ordered them to stop construction and return the property to its original state. The Sacketts responded by suing the agency. The High Court's ruling dramatically reduces the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, dismantling protections that have for more than 50 years safeguarded the nation's waters. Environmental groups maintain that repealing critical protections for tens of millions of acres of wetlands threatens the sources of clean drinking water for millions of Americans. Your reporter spoke with Tara Heinzen, legal director with the group Food and Water Watch, who discusses the consequences of this Supreme Court ruling for the environment and people and what states can do to strengthen local regulations to protect wetlands. The Clean Water Act, the whole objective of the act is to protect and maintain the integrity of the nation's waters. This is a law that's about protecting water quality. And Congress knew, and we've known for many decades, that you can't protect downstream waters if you don't protect the wetlands and the small streams that feed them. And so to give effect to that clear intent of the law, for many years, EPA has adopted a test that has tried to protect as many waterways as possible. And so it has created a test where um, the Clean Water Act says, for example, that if you have a wetland that's adjacent to a protected waterway, like a lake or a river or a stream, that wetland should be protected because it's adjacent. What the five-justice majority led by Justice Alito did here is completely upend these longstanding protections and throw out those tests. It radically reinterpreted the Clean Water Act and created a new test where only wetlands that have a continuous surface connection to a protected waterway are themselves protected. So only wetlands that are actually touching a river or a lake 
This is, of course, not based on science. We know that that's not the only way that waters interact and are connected. But this significant nexus idea is now completely gone. A wetland that's just nearby a river that certainly has effects on its, you know, its integrity, its health, that's no longer enough to protect this wetland. What this means is that in those cases, developers and polluters can dump fill material into wetlands. They can dump pollution into wetlands without even getting a permit to do so. And the scope of this decision is vast. This opinion is going to take tens of millions of acres of wetlands out of protection from all of these destructive activities across the country. Tara, I've heard that wetlands, of course, are critical in flood protection, especially when we have rising water levels with climate change. Water quality overall is impacted by the pollution that's dumped into wetlands. And of course, we all depend on clean water. And if there's more pollution in these waters, as I understand it, treatment centers, municipal treatment centers for water are going to be having to be ramped up. And that's more expense for consumers. There's lots more, I'm sure. But tell us about what some of the impacts that uh, our listeners are going to feel from this ruling. No, that's exactly right. I mean, wetlands affect nearby waterways in so many ways. They filter pollutants and protect clean water downstream. As you mentioned, they control flooding. They can also help manage water supply in droughts. And of course, both flooding and droughts are becoming more extreme with climate change. Wetlands also provide important wildlife habitat, which then, of course, is important for downstream ecosystems. So protecting wetlands and protecting other waterways really go hand in hand. Tara, with uh, the federal EPA weekend, what can state governments do to strengthen enforcement at the local level and protect wetlands? And a second part of that question would be, what can Congress do to reverse this ruling and disable the the weakening of EPA regulations at the Supreme Court, all those uh, brilliant Nobel Prize winning scientists on the Supreme Court have uh, done here? Yeah, that's a great question because we certainly can't just accept this as the status quo. But ultimately, Congress does still have authority to revise the language of the statute, make it even more explicit that small streams and wetlands are in fact protected. And that would supersede a Supreme Court um, opinion based on the current language. Of course, the Supreme Court could also, again, reverse itself. We've seen the Supreme Court look at this question of which waterways are protected a number of times. Um, But with this court, that doesn't seem likely anytime soon. So I think ultimately we need to be working and building power towards that long-term congressional fix to restore the true intent and scope of the act. But as you mentioned, in the meantime, states can and absolutely must take action to protect waterways that are left out of protection by the Sackett decision. States have the authority to go above and beyond what EPA requires under the Clean Water Act, and some have. Um, According to the Environmental Law Institute, 24 states, though, do rely entirely on the federal definitions of waters of the United States and only protect those waterways. So about half of states currently are going to have a lot of wetlands taken out of protection. About 19 states do currently protect a lot of the waterways removed from protection by this decision. So in some states, mostly on the coasts, the harmful impacts will be lesser than on many of the states in the middle of the country and in the south. 
but a lot of work needs to be done at the state level to pass legislation and fill the gaps in those 24 states that have been created by this opinion. And so people will need to be working to educate their state lawmakers and to help build pressure to again, mitigate the damage from this opinion and make sure that states step up where the Supreme Court has failed. That was Tara Heinzen, legal director with Food and Water Watch. Learn more about the consequences of the Supreme Court's ruling in the Sackett v. EPA case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A little sailboat with an impressive pedigree pulled into New Haven, Connecticut's harbor in early June to spread its message calling for a world free of nuclear weapons. The boat, named Golden Rule, first sailed the South Pacific in 1958 with a crew of four Quakers who intended to disrupt U.S. atmospheric nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. The crew was arrested in Hawaii and prevented from disrupting the nuclear tests But the incident made international news and contributed to the signing of the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1963. Sixty-five years later, that very same boat has been refurbished by Veterans for Peace and is sailing up and down both the east and west coasts and through the U.S. heartland on rivers and lakes in a voyage called the Great Loop. On their journey, a rotating three-member volunteer crew give talks about the ever-growing risks of nuclear war, and call for a nuclear-free world. The symbolic doomsday clock is set closer to midnight now than at any other time in its 76-year history. At a program on the windy shores of Long Island Sound, organized by Veterans for Peace in the Greater New Haven Peace Council, Atomic Army veteran Hank Bolden of Hartford told an audience he was one of the young soldiers used as guinea pigs to study the impact of nuclear bomb radiation on the human body. He noted that his entire unit undergoing this experiment in 1955, deployed just 2.8 miles from the atomic bomb blast, was black. I was exposed to ionizing radiation so badly that when the bomb was dropped, you hold your hand up and you could see the bones in your hands, you know? That's how bad that was. When they sent you out For this particular mission, they never told you what it was that you were going to be part of. I have all the cancers that go along with being exposed to ionizing radiation. And I was diagnosed in 1990 with uh, multiple myeloma. And at that time, I was given three and a half to four years to live. I kind of think I beat the odds, you know, because I'm now 86 years old. That was atomic veteran Hank Bolden. Captain Kiko Johnston Kitazawa grew up in Hawaii, and has a boat-building business in Hilo. He has helmed the Golden Rule on several legs of its recent journey, including from Hawaii to the West Coast and also on much of the inland route. He sailed it from New York City to several stops along the Connecticut coast, including New Haven. Not only am I not a veteran, I'm not even a member of Veterans for Peace, but I, I do their captain role because I support most of their um, their points and like to be able to um, educate people about the dangers of nuclear weapons 
you know, in Hawaii, because um, especially my hometown of Hilo, probably over 40% of the people there when I was a kid were of Japanese descent. And so Hawaii people learned really early what had happened in Hiroshima, even though the occupation forces kept the press out of there for a little while afterwards. And because Hawaii people had relatives living there, some were stuck there during the war, others went there with the occupation army of the United States. So they got word back pretty quick what it's like to be under a nuclear bomb. So I think in many areas of the United States, if you bring up that maybe this wasn't a good thing to have happened, you'll get the argument that, well, it saved millions of lives over an invasion and it was necessary and it was, um, you know, justified or at least the lesser of two evils. In Hawaii, mostly everybody's like, no, that was not okay. Captain Kiko picks up the story of the original Golden Rule and her crew. They weren't able to go to the Marshall Islands, but their being jailed led to the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty. So the failure was a success. And then the boat was sold because it had served its purpose, and it went through several other owners. Eventually, it was a derelict in Humboldt Bay, and it sank in a gale and they dragged it up on the beach and were gonna burn it. And somebody from Veterans for Peace chapter up there recognized, hey, that's that boat that was back in 1958. So they asked the shipyard owner, can we have a year in your shipyard to rebuild it? And a combination of wooden boat enthusiasts, Quakers and Veterans for Peace members rebuilt it under boatyard guidance over five years and relaunched it and went off to do education. Bill Good is a middle school science teacher from Ohio. He's a veteran, but not a member of Veterans for Peace, at least not yet. He did some earlier support work for the Great Loop and is spending much of his summer vacation volunteering as part of the three-member crew. What would you say in a sentence or two is the goal of this whole voyage? Uh, the end goal would be abolition of nuclear weapons, but I think more our thing is to raise awareness um, I tell people we're kind of two generations removed from the Cold War. And so the kids that were born in the 90s and raised in the 90s aren't familiar with that Cold War mentality that we grew up with. And now they're the parents. So you have another generation, their kids, and we don't talk about and we don't teach about and you don't hear about in the news about these nuclear weapons, but all the nuclear weapons are still here and they're still a threat to life on our planet. That was Atomic Army veteran Hank Bolden, Captain Kiko Johnston Kitazawa, and crew member Bill Good, active in supporting the Veterans for Peace Cold War-era sailboat, the Golden Rule. Learn more about the anti-nuclear mission and voyage of the Golden Rule by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.